Lord Jesus, uh, before we continue on, open up your word. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for this reminder already of your love poured out at the cross for us. And as we open up your word, as we dig into your sermon, I just pray that our hearts would be drawn to the beauty of your cross. It sounds so wrong. How can a cross, an instrument of torture, be so beautiful? But it is in you. And I just pray that that would become so real in our hearts today where we need to hear you. And in that place, Lord, that you would take us to live a life of a cross as we follow you. To go out and share this good news. Would you move today? Would you work uh, through me? Uh, I just pray that you would help me to stay in the zone that you have for us today. Remove the obstacles that would get in our way. And Holy Spirit, move. Move in us. Move through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Johnny, I did pray for Brad today. So did Matt. We got together and we prayed for Brad. And uh, it's good. I'm so excited for the opportunities God's given him to preach at one of our other churches in Richmond Hill, which is great. And I want to say thank you to you for praying for Mandy and I last weekend. I won't get into too much detail, but we just had a phenomenal week up north, and God moved powerfully. It's one of those weekends where, you know, um, he did it, and uh, it wasn't because anything special in us, and it was just really cool, and I appreciate your prayers as being a part of that powerful thing, and I just want to say thanks to Matt for jumping straight in. Where are you, Matt? Where did you, oh, right here, and Krista, welcome. I didn't get to say welcome last time, so it's so good to have, can we just give them a hand one more time? I didn't get to do it last time, so we love you guys. We're so excited to have you. Matt, I did finally get a chance to listen to the sermon, man, and I was, I was like, oh man, this is competition. Okay, um, so it's good, but uh, competition is good and, uh, in that sense, and I'm just so excited to have you guys on board with us, and so it's good. Matt's not feeling great, so uh, I'm glad you're able to get here, so he's trying to protect you all from himself, and don't, don't uh, be offended if he dips out pretty quick afterwards, so it's good, but we're just glad you're with us. Hey, we wrapped up our final Beatitude two weeks ago, and uh, the Beatitudes, happiness as God defines happiness, and this backwards or the seemingly backwards way of Christ, the way of a cross that seems so crazy to our human minds, but it's a way that brings life and life abundantly. And so we talked about that. If you got snowed in, it was kind of a pretty, uh, pretty nasty morning. And of course, it's the one morning where our live feed didn't work and we were able to get the recording. And so I think we got about half of it up. Um, we are going to tie it in today because all of those Beatitudes just start to move out into everything else Jesus is going to say. And so if you did miss it, um, I have some notes in at the office. I think you can get in touch with them. For those of you keeners who'd be like, cool, I can read those notes and catch up. That's, and even if you won't read them, just get them so that the office tells me like, yeah, a lot of people wanted to read your sermon. Um, that would make me feel good um, and help my insecurities, which is probably not a good thing. So um, rambling. Okay, what are we talking about today? We are moving further into Jesus's sermon as he's now finished the Beatitudes, these eight traits of a follower of Christ that bring happiness. Um, and today we're going to move into our witness and our testimony for Christ. 
taking this good news that we've received now, taking it out into the world. Uh, and that is the idea. Um, the Beatitudes explain to us the fundamentals of what it means to follow Christ. The fundamental character, the internal work of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. Now, based on that, Jesus is going to take us out to other brothers and sisters in Christ and out into the world at large. And so Jesus' way is always inside first, then out. Never outside in. Never. Always starts here. That's why he starts with the Beatitudes. And so based on those, we want to now flesh that out as we move out further into the world, further into Jesus' sermon. And so question rhetorical don't answer out loud when you hear things like share your faith evangelism witness be honest with yourself what are the first emotions and thoughts that come to mind yeah thank you god bless you i hear that ah. what comes to mind what fills your heart is it like yes let's go Let's charge hell with water pistols. Come on. Or do you feel, ah. Does it freak you out? Does it create panic and anxiety? Maybe a little PTSD? How does that make you feel? I want you to think about that because this is what Christ asks of us. And yet it's one of the things I think we struggle with the most. Uh, the North American church, historically and factually, just from all the research and whatever, we do a really nice job, or a pretty decent job, maybe I should say, of making sure that the believers all get together and study the word and pray and do those types of things. I think we got a lot of growth there too. But typically really struggle with the idea of taking the good news of Jesus Christ beyond our walls here. And so this is a big deal. Matthew 5, there's actually now more than one little tiny verse, so you've got to open your Bible with me. I'm not putting it up on the screen. Or did I? I don't remember. But either way, open up your Bible. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I've said this before, it's super easy. They're free apps. Version app, just search it right on your phone in the app store. You can download that. We use the NIV, the New International Version. You can follow right along for free. It's amazing, and it's really nice because you just punch in the thing I say. You don't have to flip through the whole book, so if that's easier for you, go for it. But Matthew chapter 5, and we are now in verses 13 through 16, right off the Beatitude. And just a little reminder, this wasn't like week two, Sunday morning, where Jesus now preaches the rest of the sermon. Jesus would have preached this whole thing in one shot. This is just one big sermon. Out just off of probably Capernaum, the north side of the Sea of Galilee, sitting on the mountain. He's down at the bottom. Everybody's up because they didn't have amplified microphones, and that just seemed to be the way it worked to get the sound up. Thousands of people sitting and listening. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everything and everyone in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I just want to walk through this passage a little bit. Let's make sure we're clear on what Jesus is talking about. We want to always make sure we're clear on what he was saying and how that original audience would have understood what he was saying. And then we'll move into what it means for you and I right now. But if you've grown up in the church, you've probably done at least one or a hundred Bible studies on this passage. Am I right? And you talked about salt, right? You talked about what salt does in real life, and then you make the application and all the different things. That's kind of what we do. Good stuff. What did Jesus mean by salt? Well, what is salt? Salt makes things taste better. Amen. So far, the cholesterol and the blood pressure is doing well, and I'm going to just keep piling on that salt until my doctor tells me I can't. Love salt. Favorite seasoning in my world. It's a preservative, especially before refrigeration. Salt keeps meat pure longer, keeps it from going bad. Um, reading an old Welsh preacher from the 50s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this is interesting. He's talking about in the 50s, the reality is in every culture, society is always going in a downward spiral. <laughs> That's just how it works. And the church is supposed to come and be a preservative, to slow it down, to point it in the right direction. And that idea is interesting, though, is he's talking in the 50s about coming out of the age of enlightenment and the 1800s especially, the optimism that the world, especially the Western world had, like Europe, North America, hey, industrial revolution, we're getting smarter, people are more educated, things are going up. And then all of a sudden, World War I, boom, nope. Okay, well, that was it. Then World War II, boom. And now here he is in the 50s and 60s going, hey, you know how we all got so excited thinking that just if we got smarter, the world would all get awesome? It's not going to happen. Today, we've freed ourselves and our culture from the silly moralism of the church so that we can become our true happy selves and yet we're more depressed and suicidal than we've ever been. The way of Christ preserves and holds off the rot when done in the spirit and the character in his way. Salt creates thirst. We should live in such a way that people become thirsty for Christ. It helps when you're thirsty and people give you a lot of water, doesn't it? And then one thing when you're not thirsty and someone keeps trying to force feed you water, <laughs> needs to be some thirst. Giant amen to all of these. Maybe you've had other ones that have come out from your Bible studies. But here's what I want to say today. As much as all of these are amazing and we need to hold on to them when we understand what Jesus is talking about here, the Jews of his day would have had a deeper understanding than you and I would right now a couple thousand years later. Because in a Jewish culture, salt is a sign or a symbol of covenant. What do I mean by that? Typical covenant symbol we think of in the Jewish world, still used today, is circumcision. Interesting. It's a symbol on the eighth day when a little boy, little Jewish boy is circumcised, that he belongs to the people of God and the covenant of God. 
You know what's interesting about Jesus? Circumcision is the only physical trait we know about him. Because scripture tells, I know, sorry, that's a little awkward, but it's true, right? You know, the, the prophecies from the Old Testament tell us he was unrecognizable. It wasn't like he was like some spectacularly tall guy and the only guy with blue eyes in Jerusalem and just everybody, woo-woo. He was just normal. It gives us no physical features other than on the eighth day as a good Jewish child with good Jewish parents. He was circumcised as a symbol of his belonging and the covenant of the Jews with Yahweh, with God. A sign of the covenant. Intentional rabbit trail. Follow me for a second. Hang with me, and I want to bring this back because I think this is really cool. What do we mean when we say covenant? What do we mean when we say covenant? God's version of a covenant is very different than what you and I probably think of when we think of a contract. You know, you do your contract with Bell or Rogers or whoever your phone carrier is, and they make you go through all the stuff, and you have to sign the things, and there's all the rules and the different things. And if you, you know, one of you doesn't live up to your end of the bargain, there's lawsuits and collectors and all kinds of different things that come in. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not have a personal relationship with Bell Mobility. I've been with them a long time. They keep telling me I'm a preferred customer, but they still don't give me good deals. So it's like, what's the deal with you? That's a contract. In the Old Testament days, when we go back to Father Abraham, way back to the beginning of the book, the secular societies and cultures and cities and countries around them used to have covenants. And they would call it cutting a covenant. You would cut a covenant. What does that mean? And so their version of it was a lot like what we kind of think of when we talk about our mobile phone, you know, contract or whatever. Except in that day, without the court systems and fairness that we so enjoy here in Canada, the person who was the lesser in the deal always took the hit. The person who was up here, the contract was always bent in their favor. And so what would happen is you're a little country or you're a hurting country in the ancient Near East, Middle East and that whole area, and your enemies are coming against you and they're too powerful for you. And they're going to take your food and they're going to kill you and they're going to do all the stuff. And so you run to another state, say Egypt or wherever that might be, and you go, let's cut a covenant. And when you get to that person, you go to the pharaoh or the king or whatever, and the lesser king would come in and say, I'd like to cut a covenant. They would make deals, okay? We'll provide you protection from your enemies, but this is what you're going to give us. We want money. We want some of your crops. We want all these different things. And then there would be penalties if you didn't live up to it. And so what they then would do, and this is where the cutting part comes, they would take a cow or two, slice it in half, lay it down, and the lesser king coming to the greater king, or whoever that was, would walk through the cut pieces, reading the, t the deal, reading the terms. And the symbol was, if you don't live up to this, this is what's going to happen to you. Cut a covenant. Crazy. Why do I bring that up? Genesis 15 I'd like for you to go there, too. It's at the very beginning, first book of the Bible. 
Genesis chapter 15, because God, Yahweh, cuts a covenant with Abraham. Using the same ideas as the secular world around them. And if you don't understand what was happening around you, maybe you've read this passage, you're like, what on earth is going on here? Genesis 15, where are we going? I'm going to be in verse 8. We're going to read through here in this, the rest of this chapter. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession? Pause. <laughs> God has just promised Abraham the big promises. Hey, listen, you're going to have a kid. You're going to have lots of descendants, even though you shouldn't be able to have a kid because you're both too old. You're going to have so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. It's going to be like the sand of the sea, stars of the sky. I'm going to give you a land to protect you. But through your people, I will bless all the nations of the world. So this is, this is what's happening. And Abraham's going, uh, Lord, um, how can I know that you're going to fulfill your promise? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So these heifers are full, full grown. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. See what's happening here? The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. He's like in a trance here. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Verse 17. Check this out. When the sun had set, the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, cut a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. We'll stop there. From the understanding of cutting a covenant that we see in the world that surrounded them, who was supposed to walk through the cut pieces of the cow? Abraham. What is the smoking pot and the fire, the smoking torch and the fire pot? It's God. It's God. Do you see what's happening here? Abraham's the one that's supposed to walk through and go, okay, if I don't do my end, here's what's going to happen to me, uh, this and this and this. And instead, God puts him in a trance, and God himself walks through. You know what the message is? Abraham, you'll never live up to your end of the bargain. I already know that. I'll do it for you. You catch that? That gives me goosebumps. We see as we move forward in the story, he does deliver them from the nation that slaves them, Egypt. He takes them out and they climb up on Mount Sinai and now we're into Moses, right? And what does God do? He doesn't give them a list of rules. No, no, no. He reminds them of the covenant he had already cut with Father Abraham. Hey guys, here's the deal. 
You're already a part of this. It's already a done deal. And it's the same thing. You can't do it, but I'll do it through you. I'll do it for you. And what is the ultimate blessing that God promised Abraham? Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came, and when he died on the cross, he walked through the cut cow. Hey, guys. Willow Creek, Baptist Church people, you can't do it. I'll do it for you. And Jesus walks in between on our behalf. He cuts a covenant with you and me when we put our faith. This is what we're talking about when we say, I believe that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day. I am now received into the covenant people of God by my faith. Amazing. This is the symbol of circumcision. So when we say circumcision is a symbol of the covenant, that's what it means. Interesting, circumcision, as we know, was just for the boys. Did you also know that salt in Jewish culture was a sign of the covenant as well? Leviticus 2, 13, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Sorry, I'm bringing the rabbit trail back, okay? You with me? We're bringing the rabbit trail back. Salt of the covenant. Salt was used in Jewish culture to seal a deal, confirm a friendship, to bring your offering to the Lord. Ezekiel 16 is interesting, for it says this, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. Interesting context. Let me do my best here as quickly as possible. Jewish people, when they had a baby, rubbed that baby in salt. Especially back in the day, it was antibacterial, right? So it's good. Physical, it's a good thing. But this passage is really interesting. Because here, what, what, the, what the author is saying is that the salt is used to symbolically show that the child's parents have neglected their duty as parents. Neglected and despised because these things weren't done. It's a, it's a reference for Israel. <laughs> so because you're not being faithful to the covenant. Coming out of the Old Testament, it was super normal in a Jewish culture, probably in other cultures, you have a baby, you rub the baby with salt. It seems so weird. <laughs> You did it. Yes, antibacterial, but also a sign. This child belongs in covenant with Yahweh. Salt of the covenant. Why don't Christians practice circumcision or running, rubbing salt on our babies in the New Testament? Well, praise Jesus that we don't, but We actually do have symbols of the covenant, don't we? Primarily, baptism and communion. 
These are our symbols, our reminders that we are cut into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus walked through the split cow when he died on the cross and rose from the tomb. And by faith, we have been adopted into the family of God and heirs of the same promise that God gave all the way back to Abraham. We're, we're the nations that God blessed. Redemption, reconciliation, resurrection, life. This, my friends, is what makes life taste good. This is what preserves the rot and moves us in a different direction. And this is what makes us thirsty. It's not saying perfect words and all the little things. It's drawing people to covenant, as is meant here. The deeper understanding. As salt in the world to our own brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone beyond. Colossians 4, I do think I have this one on the screen. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am currently in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace and what? Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Do I operate in a way the beatitudes of Christ coming through me that people are thirsty, but am I pointing people to the beauty of what Christ has done for them on the cross? Inviting them into covenant. Are my conversations seasoned with salt? Is this true of your Grogu? Grogu. <laughs> Grogu. Why? Watch too much Star Wars. Sorry. Is it true of your grow group? Is it true when you get together one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two with Christian friends from the church? Are you drawing and inviting each other into this covenant relationship? Is your conversation seasoned with that salt? Is it true in our world? Should I say our worlds? How about your home? How about your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever? Allowing the Spirit to show us how to talk and respond to specific conversations in a way that points people to the good news of Jesus Christ. That he wants to cut a covenant with them. So why is it the North American church does not seem very salty? <laughs> Have you stopped to think about that? Why don't we see people thirsty for this good news? Plenty of Christians that have a lot of attention in politics and media, a lot of big microphones, a lot of social media platforms. Why, why aren't we seeing this? I love Dallas Willard. 
by modest estimate, more than a quarter of the entire population of the United States have professed an evangelical conversion experience. William Iverson Riley observes, a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. Would it not? If this is real Christianity, the salt of the earth, where is the effect of which Jesus spoke? Keep that in mind. I gotta keep moving. What did Jesus mean by light? You are the light of the world. Can we go up to the screen? John, let's hit that first. Um, six or plus so years ago, I can't remember, I had the privilege of going to Israel with Dave Taylor. Um, a number of you came. We went on a trip like a couple years after that, which was phenomenal. Um, but what was really cool with just a couple of us in a tiny little Mazda rental, we got to go into places you don't le normally get to go. This is a picture in a Roman city off of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and so as you look out there, and John, let's hit the next picture, kind of from the same area, but just out a little bit. If you see the sunset and you go right, is the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And so on that north side, and just for perspective, the Sea of Galilee is like way smaller than Lake Simcoe. <laughs> How many of you read the New Testament? You're like, oh, and they got in a boat and they went to the other side, and it's like, yeah, like, I, I just, it was like blew my mind when I got there. I'm like, oh, I had this picture. It was like two days, and it's like, you know, Gilgan's Island at three, you know, like whatever. And, you know, they're kind of going, 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 going. But it's just right there. And from this city, you can actually see Capernaum. Capernaum is Peter's hometown. It's where he had his house. You can actually go see his house. It's one of the better ruins that are there. You can see where his fishing business would have been. And just off, and I'm sorry, I don't have a picture of it, but just off that spot, there's a bunch of little hills that are most likely where this sermon literally happened. Just outside of Capernaum there, north side of the Sea of Galilee. And what hit me when I was over on that side, again, I wish I had a picture of it, and you look across, you can actually see the ruins of the city almost. Speculation, this might be the city where Jesus comes across and the guy with the legion of demons comes out and the pigs go into the water. It's probably where this happened. But here's what hit me while I was sitting there, and I just couldn't wait to the day I get to actually talk about the sermon. So I don't know if you're excited, but I am. So if we go to the next picture, this is not the city, but you see to the right, you see the lights. It's actually an old Roman city that's still in existence and running today. I took the picture from across the lake. But if you think about it, you're in Capernaum, you're outside, you're on the big hill, the, the masses are gathered, Jesus is preaching. I just sat there and I went, oh, how cool. Jesus said, hey, you are a light, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Like looking right over there where it would have been lit up. Wild. Jesus used visual examples. I should probably do more of that. That's why I showed you pictures. Catch what's happening. Cool. Cool moment. All you nerds like me are like, that's really cool information. Who cares? <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing. I want you to stop for a second and think. You lived 2,000 years ago in a Roman-occupied space, and the only thing protecting you in your little hut from marauders and Roman occupiers and all different things is like some, you know, mud and grass up on top and blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden you go, oh, uh, 
actually, I'm not sure I want to be in the city that everybody can see from all over the place. <laughs> That's pretty vulnerable. Where is the protection? Like, wouldn't it be easier to turn the lights out and just kind of hide so people can't find you while you're sleeping? Interesting thought. The point, the sermon, and the point Jesus is getting here, he's saying, don't hide this good news of the covenant. Let it shine like the city up on the hill. Don't put a basket over your lamp. Let it shine through the house. And the tie-in to our last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted. We are people who are called to make peace. And as we talked about, making peace is going to actually make enemies. the salty witness of the good news and the covenant is going to be awkward because basically what we're saying, hey, listen, if you gave up all the things in your life that you think give you life and happiness, all the things you hold on, your idols, <laughs> the things you think are God and give you significance, if you gave those up and actually let Jesus do it, your life would be better. And you remember we talked, for those who were with us, People don't like it when you touch their idols. It's good news. It's peace. It's reconciliation. It's abundant life. But it comes through a cross. Denying ourselves. It's not a popular message. And there's going to be persecution in one form or another. The salty witness of the good news is going to create persecution. But let me say this, the salty witness of the good news should combine tangible acts of sacrificial love and the message behind them. Jesus never separated good works and good news. We did that in the 1900s, really. They're always part of the same thing, word and deed, good news and good works. And I want to say this, talked about this before, but I want to hit it again. The way of Christ and shining the light is always incarnation before proclamation. That's nice. Thanks for the big words, Pastor. What do I mean? Incarnation is the big fancy term that means Jesus, who is God, left heaven and became born of Mary, a teenage girl. He became human and took on flesh. That's the incarnation. He didn't yell from heaven, Hey, get it together! He came in complete vulnerability, a baby, to parents with no power, no money, no position, and became one of us. He identified with us. Incarnation. Coolest part of the incarnation is he comes in and you see story after story in his ministry where he gets right down with everybody. He touches the leopard. He gets on the ground with the sinner. Proclamation is the part where he goes, hey, by the way, good news that you guys heard from all the prophets, it's fulfilled today. Yep, that's me. Repent and believe. That's the proclamation, proclaim. Love the story of the woman caught in adultery. Always wonder where the guy is, but whatever. 
He was too scared to come out. So I wonder why they didn't drag him, drag him out, though, too, right? Why just the girl? But here she is, and they're rocks in hand. They're about ready to take her down. And what does Jesus do? He gets on the ground with her. He literally saved her life, stood between her and the rocks, the execution. And then when they all disappear, he stands up and he goes, hey, listen, go and sin no more. Incarnation before proclamation. You see where I'm going? Identify. Become friends. Get in there before you open your mouth. And just for the record, when he said go and sin no more, he didn't say that with a whole bunch of guilt and shame. She probably already had enough of it. What he was saying is, hey, listen, what you're doing right now is killing you. I want you to live in a way that will bring you life. Incarnation before proclamation. We are called to first embody Christ-like character, beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit. Then, practically, tangibly, go meet needs. And then in all of that, as we've identified, then the Lord and the Spirit move and we open our mouths. Hey, can I tell you about this guy, Jesus? Lamp that Jesus refers to has to have oil. The Beatitudes empowered by the Spirit is the oil. It's Jesus in us. And order matters here. When we start with the preaching and the proclaiming first, which has kind of been our MO in the North American church for quite a few decades. When we start with proclamation and the message first, get the visual. It's like shining a giant spotlight into a room with someone who's been in pitch dark for weeks. What do you think their reaction's gonna be? Oh, the light, no. <laughs> They're gonna hide. They're gonna cover their eyes. That's an interrogation, not an invitation. We start with incarnation before we share. And just a reminder, we are not calling people to change their politics, their philosophies, or their behaviors. That is not the call of the gospel message. The call of the gospel message is deny all the stuff, lay it on the ground, and pick up what only Jesus gives you. Because what Jesus gives you will actually bring life to you and the people around you. Let him take care of the other stuff. However, when we talk about letting our good deeds shine, it includes providing for and standing up for the struggling, the oppressed, the marginalized, those in need. And for the record, my friends, just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you aren't struggling and in need. But this begs the question, why do we hide the light then? <laughs> why do we keep hiding the light? I'd love for you to spend some time thinking about that. Can I just give you a couple things quickly here? 
want to come back to this idea of being that city on the hill that's actually really vulnerable. Shining a light for Christ is incredibly vulnerable. Two things that come out here. Fear of failure and the fear of rejection. Let's talk about the fear of failure. Inadequacy. What if I can't do it? What if I do it wrong? I don't know enough Bible. I'm not smart enough. I don't think well on my feet. What if they ask questions I don't have answers for? What if I don't say the perfect right words? You ever feel like that? Does that hold you back? Can I just say this? I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Very few people in the church are called to be expert witnesses. Those are like our apologetics people, right? William Lane Craig, man, that guy's smart. I just watch him and I'm like, dude, how did he think that through? That's pretty brilliant. But apologetics only go so far, right? You ever watch the YouTubes where he debates like some really prominent atheist? And if you've already got your algorithms going towards Christian stuff, they'll all pop up and go, Christian apologist destroys atheists. I'm like, sweet, let's check that one out. Oh, and they go, and you get done, you go, yeah, give it to him. But then on that little thing on the side that gives the other ones, from the other algorithm, atheist destroys Christian apologists. I'm like, well, what debate was that? Oh, it was the same one. Because we're all coming in with our ideas. Like, you're not going to change people's minds by arguing them into the heaven. To the heaven. I don't know why I said it that way, but you know what I mean. It's not because you were smarter and you got all the barbs in and the person went, wow, that was a much better intelligent argument that I have, so therefore let me bow down and give my life to Jesus. Salvation is a supernatural act through the authority of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Only. You will never be smart enough. Stop trying. We're not called to be expert witnesses, my friends. We are called to be eyewitnesses. You know, in the court, they bring in the expert, the, you know, the brain surgeon, urologist, who goes, yeah, when the bullet came in, like, whatever. Cool. I don't know what you just said, but that's great. We're the one that's supposed to get up in the stand and go, hey, I was standing across the street, and it was that guy. <laughs> is that the guy? Yeah, that's the guy. I don't know what his name is, but I know that's the guy. And in the positive, that's our job when we say be a witness. Hey, you got a lot of good questions. I'm not sure the answers to those, but can I just tell you, before Jesus, this was me. After Jesus, this is me. I love the witness of the blind guy, right? All the religious leaders come and they get, Jesus heals him of blindness. He goes, who did this? He goes, it was that guy? And I don't know anything about your answers. All I know is I used to be blind a few minutes ago and now I can see. Can you do that? What holds us back? Inadequacy, I would add to it, guilt and fear. I think many of you who are maybe my age and older-ish grew up in a guilt and fear environment around sharing our faith. Maybe you're like me. And I think it was a lot of bad teaching, bad theology, bad doctrine, bad practice. Living under an overwhelming pressure that if we don't tell people about Jesus, they may die and be without Jesus forever. And we will be responsible for that. 
Anyone else? Can I just tell you what's going to happen if that's what you're sitting under? One of two things likely, and I'm sure there's some nuance in between. Most likely, in my experience, most people just quit because you can't handle the weight. Neither can I. Or you're going to go out and share Jesus with every single human that looks in your direction. But it's not because you love them. It's because you're scared out of your mind that you're going to be responsible for them one day. Both of those are not the response that Jesus is looking for when he says, shine the light. I don't want to get into a giant conversation about God's sovereignty and man's free will. That's a whole other thing, and wow, the time is going. So let me wrap this up. If I can just say this. If I can't save myself by my good works, why would I think I can save someone else by my good works? That person's salvation is not my responsibility. I don't, I'm not the one that saves them. Even God himself comes and says, hey, here's an invitation. But our yes is still super important. We have to respond to it. So we live in a tension, and we need to find this holy tension. I'm not going to get to heaven someday, and Jesus is going to go, hey, you disobeyed me when I asked you to share, share you know, your testimony, my testimony with this person, and look, now they're forever without me. Could you please remove that lie from over your head? Wow, will that kill you. But I also want to say at the same time in this tension, my obedience matters from relationship with Jesus. I want to be obedient to Christ when he says, Jay, I need you to be my ambassador of reconciliation right now. I'm asking you to go talk with that person. It's going to be super uncomfortable. I believe God's going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish but I'd like to do it with him. I would like to be a part of that. Not out of guilt and fear, but out of love. Love for my Jesus and love for the person. The moment you start sharing your faith with someone because you're afraid their eternal destiny rides on you, you are no longer sharing your faith because you love that person. You're sharing your faith out of selfishness. It's more about you than it is about the person, right? not the way it works. It's bad theology. It's bad practice. Our motivation is key. And let me just say this quickly, the fear of rejection. And again, I don't want to re-preach um, our sermon on persecution. Again, if you want the notes, please let us know if you missed it. But as we said, the good news is going to be offensive to many. Persecution comes in different forms. Of course, martyrdom, but it's a lot smaller, probably more often than not. Insults, gossip and slander, loss of income, mean things said about me on social media. What if people think I'm crazy or stupid? What if my own friends or family push me away and it gets more awkward than it already is? What would you add to my list? And where do you personally struggle? Are you ready to give that to Jesus?
And if I can just give you a reminder here to pull this together. All of this is only possible through the authority of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. You do not have what it takes to do this. So quit trying so hard and settle into his authority and his power. When he says, hey, could you help me out here? I need you to go talk. I need you to go meet this person's need. Could you just say yes? That's what we're talking about. And I think the crazy thing here, as you look at this story in Matthew, who is Jesus talking to? He's at the Sea of Galilee in a little fishing town with peasant Jews. That's who came out to the hill to hear the message. These aren't the elites in the big city. He's out with the farmers, the peasants, the oppressed by Rome, the nobodies who had nothing. And he goes, I believe you can do this. And guess what? He was right. He was right. The church for 2,000 years that has had the most fruit of salvation and revival has always been the church that is nobody. Meaningless, marginalized, nothing to offer really tangible, not lots of money, not lots of power, definitely not lots of power. That is the church that the Spirit comes into and moves in power. Not the super smart, not the super rich, the unimpressive and the weak. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. There's no other way that this works. Our job is to stay salty, <laughs> to keep letting his spirit move in our hearts, bringing these beatitudes to life, the fruit of his spirit, and to be obedient as he asks us to, do, to go to do. That's our job. Man, we had a really great song set, and it's really late. <laughs> Can I just ask you to join me in the, a word of prayer? And before I pray, I'd like for you just to sit quietly where you're at. If you need to leave, please do so. But I would like to sing this one last song, just as a benediction. And a reminder that God has the power. God is stronger. Would you just take a moment quietly? Would you let his Holy Spirit speak to you? What's holding you back? Maybe you're at the place where you're not even sure you believe in Jesus yet. My goodness, just stay there for a while. Let him speak. But if you are a follower of Christ, what is holding you back from stepping out and being a light? Why are you hiding it? Would you let his spirit speak and would you just confess that and give it to him? Would you just do that now?